Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. Today, we'll be talking about adaptations of Shakespeare's comedy, Twelfth Night, which seems fitting for this podcast because it's all about separated twin shenanigans. Since you've actually read and studied this play in class, how about you take us away with a summary, Lulu? Uh, sure. I'm assuming most people have probably heard of Twelfth Night if they're listening to a podcast on adaptations about it, but in case you have not, I will give everyone a brief rundown. It is a comedy following Viola and Sebastian, two shipwrecked nobles who find themselves alone in a foreign country called Illyria. Alone and believing her twin brother Sebastian to be drowned, Viola disguises herself as a man called Cesario and finds work in the household of a local duke, Orsino. Viola, well disguised as a man, begins to fall for Orsino, who has no clue about her true identity. However, Orsino is in the process of wooing Olivia, a noblewoman who is in mourning and has continually re rejected his advances. After another rejection, Orsino decides to send Cesario to woo Olivia in his place, but unfortunately, Olivia is far more intrigued by Cesario and a love triangle with lots of gender fuckery and confusion ensues. There's also a subplot about servants in Olivia's household convincing her uptight steward, Malvolio, that she's secretly in love with him and that he must publicly humiliate himself in the name of her love. And then there's another subplot concerning Sebastian, who survived the shipwreck and was taken under the wing of a pirate, Antonio, as he searches for his sister. Basically, there's a lot of gender stuff and one giant love square happening at the center of this play. Basically, two things we're going to be discussing throughout the podcast are, one, twins, obviously, and two, there's a lot of potential for LGBTQ interpretations because there's a lot of gender and sexual fluidity throughout the play, even though characters do kind of end up in like heterosexual marriages by the end. I happen to have read this play and studied it pretty frequently. I've read it twice in two different classes and studied it twice. And I've also seen two separate productions, which are the 2011 Stratford production, which had really fun music, and the 2017 National Theatre production, which is notable for casting a woman as Mavalio. That's something we'll talk a little about later. Um, I've also read a bunch of retellings. I was slated to have a minor role in a production before COVID hit. I've also written fan fiction of it, so it's pretty safe to say that I really enjoy Twelfth Night. I think it has some fun characters. I think the love triangle is absolutely bonkers, and I think when you stage it correctly, it can genuinely be a really funny comedy, even though it has a lot of surprisingly dark aspects. Unfortunately, I have not had the chance to officially study Twelfth Night in college like Lulu has, but I have read and watched the play, and I also think it's a lot of fun with a lot of interesting things about character dynamics and gender and sexuality. My deep literary analysis to add to the summary is that I think Antonio is gay. Other than that, I don't really know what to add. So now, yeah, you're, you're very correct about that interpretation. Antonio is gay and I feel bad for him by the end because it so happens that Sebastian arrives in Illyria and runs into Olivia who thinks that he's Cesario and he marries Olivia randomly without really asking any questions, assumingly. And, Antonio just kind of ends up sad and alone at the end. Everyone else gets paired off, like Orsino and Viola get married and Olivia and Sebastian get married. And then like this guy called Sir Andrew who we'll talk about in a bit and this person called Maria we'll talk about in a bit also get married, but Antonio just kind of like left alone at the end, possibly in jail. It's poor, poor guy, but yes, he is very gay. We'll get to that. 
Yes, uh, it is a deeply heterosexual play, except when it comes to Antonio, who really has no other interpretation besides being in love with Sebastian. Did you just uh, call Twelfth Night deeply heterosexual? Well, like the end game of the characters. Okay, yes, but my theory is that I think some of it is supposed to be like forced and it's supposed to be kind of weird. Like I have a lot That's of That's true. I have no confidence in Sebastian and Olivia's marriage lasting more than five minutes after the end of the play. I just don't. Like, it is a weird play because it kind of plays with gender and sexuality throughout where like there's all these interpretations where you could say like, oh, this character is like totally bi or like this character's exploring gender stuff but then by the end it like it sort of ends up so like man woman married but like it's not very convincing and there's still interpretations that could happen I like to think after the end of the play so there's a lot to think about which is why these adaptations are fun because a lot of them play around with gender and sexuality in ways that are fun but also occasionally a little bit sad but like generally pretty interesting which is what we're going to be mostly focusing on yes so speaking of productions of Twelfth Night that play around a little bit with gender and sexuality. One production that I've seen is the National Theatre's 2017 production of Twelfth Night, which is extremely gay because Sebastian and Antonio do kiss in this one, although they don't end up together. There's a lot of gay longing and they were like, you know what, the text of this play is pretty gay, so we should just stage it to be that way, which is quite valid though. Um, Sebastian and Viola are also cast as black actors, which I thought was pretty cool and kind of fits with the story considering they're both outsiders in Illyria and they're not from there. As well as Sebastian and Antonio, uh, Orsino is not portrayed as a particularly heterosexual character in this play. There's one particular scene where he like goes and tells uh, Viola to woo Olivia on his behalf, where you can basically see his heterosexuality crumbling before his eyes as he realizes that he was also attracted to Cesario and it's quite entertaining. Uh, this production also is well known for having um, women play Malvolio, and although the character is usually portrayed as a man, in this version Malvolio is a woman who is also in love with Olivia. I was not quite sure what I thought of this decision, because this was actually the first staged production of Twelfth Night that I had seen, although I knew the plot beforehand, and I felt that Malvolio is supposed to be a character that you wholeheartedly dislike because he believes he's entitled to Olivia, and then you feel a bit bad for him only after people take the pranks against him too far. But if you portray Malvolio as a woman, I mostly just felt sort of bad for her because her love is unrequited and everyone manipulates her. I'm not totally sure if that's the point, but either way, I thought it was an interesting interpretation of the character uh, because everyone else in the play, except I think a couple of the servants, are the same gender as they are in the original production. But I thought that was a neat twist on the character, I guess. And I think that although this play still has the characters end up in the same heterosexual marriages that they do at the, at the end, it does play around a bit with like gender and sexuality uh, without directly going against the staging and text of the story. Do you have anything to add, Lulu? Yeah, well, it is interesting that you mentioned about it not going against the text, because I feel like by the time, every time I get to the ending of Twelfth Night, I'm like, no, I don't want it to end like that. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want Olivia and Sebastian to get married, or like, I want there to be some like Olivia Viola action going on or something. But um, that actually does not actually alter anything about the text, except making Malvolio into a Malvolio-a. And I thought the actress who played her was fantastic, Tamsin Grieg, was really good, because she starts off 
like just your stereotypical Malvolio character, which is like very uptight and repressed. But when she realizes she is tricked into thinking that Olivia is in love with her because people write a letter that she assumes is from Olivia and assumes is addressed to her. There's just sort of like this awakening in her. But then of course, she utterly humiliates herself because of this prank in front of Olivia. Um, and Olivia is like, what the hell are you doing? I, this is not, I'm not into you. And then by the end, like she's just broken. And the bit where she swears vengeance against all of them is like really actually heartbreaking. I usually don't feel that bad for Malvolio because his character is basically just like a killjoy who comes along and kind of ruins everyone's fun. So you're like, oh, well, I don't actually care about Malvolio. But like, I think when you cast a woman as Malvolio from the start, you feel really bad for her because it feels like the prank is rooted more in like homophobia rather than just like wanting an annoying person to do something dumb and then feel stupid, which is interesting. This was also the first production of Twelfth Night that I ever saw, though I had read the play before that. And it was quite interesting because I think you are supposed to feel bad for Malvolio by the end. I think it's supposed to be the story of a prank that's taken too far. Oh, definitely. Because Olivia literally has a line where she's like, oh, I feel bad for this guy when she realizes what's happened. But by casting a woman in Malvolio's role, you immediately start to feel bad from her from the beginning. And I've had a lot of interesting conversations with people because I know multiple people who've seen this production. And for me, the first time I watched it, I was kind of like not totally on board with that because I was like, oh, well, the ending is already kind of like depressingly heterosexual with like poor Antonio just kind of being off alone in the corner in unrequited love with Sebastian. But I it was pointed out to me, which I thought was a great point, which is that it forces the viewer to confront the effects of this homophobic prank. Like you viscerally feel really, really bad for Malvolio by the end. That is a really emotionally distinct way of interpreting that character because I think the audience, because if you laughed at Malvolio at the start, which I think a lot of people do, like when I've seen productions where Malvolio is played by a man, there definitely are moments of humor where you're like, ah, ha ha, look at him humiliating himself. But when you have Malvolio be a woman, you either kind of feel this like creeping dread from the start, or I imagine you laugh and then you feel complicit in this character's pain later on. So it, it is an interesting twist, but it doesn't actually alter the text of the play at all. It just brings this whole baggage of sexuality and homophobia and repression along with the character. But I, so I, I do have like somewhat complicated thoughts on that because part of me is like, well, if you're gonna make Twelfth Night gayer, why not make it gayer in a happy way? But then I'm like, there really is kind of a dark underbelly to this play. Like the Malvolio plotline is kind of horrifying. They gaslight him. Yeah. And it really kind of is. And this was the first production that I had seen staged. And so I was aware that most of the time people laughed at Malvolio and then felt bad by the end of the play. But actually from the very beginning, I was like, I'm not finding this as funny as I'm supposed to because I just feel bad for her. And it was interesting because I, if Malvolio had been a man, then I feel like uh, the plotline would have come off a lot more feeling like the character was entitled to Olivia because uh, Malvolio is a guy, but if it's Malvolia, you kind of feel bad for her because of her unrequited love for a character that's in love with like two separate people who are uh, Sebastian and uh, Cesario slash Viola. And you kind of are like, oh, I actually feel really bad for this person because the pranks that are being pulled on them eventually are going to escalate so much that they end up kind of traumatized and swearing vengeance against the pranksters. Yeah, so a lot to unpack there. I think it's definitely 
a more intense and not necessarily happy LGBTQ interpretation for Twelfth Night, but I do think it adds something that's like distinct and very strong and has a lot to unpack. I don't think it's necessarily something I'd want to see in every production of Twelfth Night, but I think it does add a very interesting layer to that character. I think you're definitely right about making it feel like Malvolio is less entitled because Malvolio has all these fantasies about being with Olivia that include like being in power and being rich and like being able to be like ha at people who like scorned Malvolio and be like now I'm above you but I think it comes off less like class climbing or entitlement when Malvolio is a woman because there's this whole kind of layer of like repressed feelings or like sudden like revelation like oh my god this woman likes me kind of thing which yes and it also yeah. adds another layer to Malvolio being like the repressed Puritan character. If Malvolio was a woman who's in love with another woman. So like, you know, as you said at the beginning, there is a whole lot of gender fuckery going on in Twelfth Night. And if you gender run a character, then you get even more so of it. So, but yeah, there are other ways that this play has kind of, this particular staging of the play, that is, has kind of messed around with or emphasized the gender and sexual fluidity of Twelfth Night. Like you mentioned, this play just like straight up leans into Antonio being in love with Sebastian, which is like the most valid interpretation possible. Like because, they okay, kiss I, on stage and everything. Yeah. So the thing is, I know when you read plays, you have to understand that there are different contexts for like the character relationships and stuff. So you can't just be like, oh, this affection between these two characters is like obviously romantic or sexual if you're reading something that's set in like a different time or culture. That being said, Antonio is obviously like super duper in love with Sebastian. We're not going to be doing any like English class analysis here, but like it literally just is like I cannot mm -hmm. imagine how you'd read any. The of way he talks about him is just like very much like a guy who was in love with someone and then was just like totally heartbroken when this person he was in love with went and married someone else without telling him. And there's just really no like heterosexual bro way to interpret that. Yeah, because Antonio is um, an enemy of Orsino and his court because he's a pirate, yet he follows Sebastian back to Illyria to help him look for his sister and stuff. So he puts himself in danger to help this stranger that he's known for like a couple months. Anyway, but um, so in this play, Sebastian and Antonio are explicitly in a kind of romantic relationship. Antonio is obviously in love with him. For me, I think Sebastian came off as someone who is perhaps less sure of his identity and his relationships because obviously he runs off yes. and marries Olivia at one point. But Antonio, like super duper gay. Also, at one point, the like um hotel or whatever the elizabethan equivalent of a hotel is that they go stay in like had extremely strong gay bar vibes oh yeah super <laughs> strong i was like are they doing this on purpose they have like, to be doing it on purpose yeah no antonio was totally like yeah i know a place we can stay and then it's literally just a gay bar like it just was a gay yes. bar I also deeply enjoyed the scene uh, where Orsina was like, Cesario, please uh, go give Olivia this kiss from me. And then like kisses her and it gets like very passionate and they're both like kind of like, what? And then they jump apart and it was okay. very funny. No, that is actually hands down one of my favorite scenes in Twelfth Night because there's so much going on in it and no one is on the same wavelength because Orsino is basically talking about how he wants to keep wooing Olivia, even though she's not down for it at one point and he's like kind of they're talking about like relationships and men and women Orsino says some kind of like sexist things 
Yeah, doesn't um, he say that, like, women can't love as much as men? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I believe that was about it. Basically, yeah. Orsino starts off the play a little a little bit sexist. And um, Viola, who's disguised as Cesario right now, has this speech that's kind of like, well, like, imagine if my dad had a daughter who was in love. And obviously she's talking about how she's in love with Orsino. Orsino but- being a himbo is not aware that she is talking about herself. Yeah, so it's interesting because she's kind of calling him out on his sexism, but also being like, I'm in love with you. Um, And he's kind of talking about how he's in love with Olivia the whole time. And like, they're sort of having an argument, but also there's like these undercurrents of like romance and sexuality. Yes, at this point, Orsino is definitely like a bit attracted to Cesario, but doesn't seem to really be like aware of this fact consciously. He's just like, I think you're a cool friend and I want to hang around you all the time. No, yeah, I think my hot take is that you should basically always stage Twelfth Night as Orsino, like, being attracted to Viola, even when he thinks Viola is Cesaro. Obviously, Viola's own identity throughout the play is a little complicated, and I love the idea of there being trans interpretations of Cesaro as being a character who doesn't necessarily fit completely into womanhood and, like, maybe find some aspect of freedom as dressing like a man, even though Viola, by the end of the play, like, takes off the male clothing and presumably starts dressing like a woman and living like a woman and marries Orsino at the end of the play. But like the fact that at the end, Viola is like, guess what? I'm a woman. And Orsino is immediately like, oh, hand in marriage, like really implies there was like something else going on there, even when he totally thought that Viola was just a guy. Yeah, like you just don't, you don't go from this person is my platonic friend to I want to marry them without there being something in between there. And this is pretty well illustrated by that scene, I think. Yeah, I like to think that Orsino is kind of internally subconsciously panicking over thinking that his male servant is hot and therefore is like projecting more on Olivia, who is like incredibly unattainable in multiple ways because she is mourning and has like explicitly turned him down. But he's like, oh, no, I have to keep like trying to date you because I don't want to acknowledge that I think that Cesario is super hot and I like being around him. So that's yes, like... And- I think that comes up pretty clear in this play, which also has truly excellent comedic timing in a lot of scenes between the characters. Yeah, I think it leans a little less into like LGBTQ interpretations of Viola and Olivia's relationship, maybe because it's just emphasizing other aspects of the play, because I think there is a little bit ambiguity their relationship, because I think Olivia is intrigued by Cesario, but Cesario is obviously actually a Viola who's not like a cis dude. So there's ways you can interpret that as like having some kind of like sapphic or gender subtext. Um, Olivia has like such a lot of interest in Cesario in this play. She's like, she is, she is very horny. It's it's quite She's impressive. Very horny. It's really funny. <laughs> There are, um, like, so many scenes of her, like, trying to get close to Cesario, who's, like, backing away, uh, like, not, like, in a mean way, just, like, a, I don't want you to find out my secret way. Yeah, like, I think that, I like to think that Viola is also kind of having, like, a crisis of sexuality and gender throughout the whole play, and it's kind of, like, Olivia is, like, hitting on me, and I'm kind of into it, but also, like, I'm lying about who I am, so there's quite a lot going on in this play. I think it emphasizes less the like Olivia Viola relationship which I'm always really intrigued by and I love it when adaptations lean into that. Yes another adaptation we'll be talking about does lean into that. Also there is one final way that this play kind of messes with gender and sexuality even though the text of the play requires everything to be kind of like wrapped up in a heterosexual bow at the end there is kind of a bit at the end (laughs) where 
the twins get switched again briefly because they're still wearing the same clothing and like they have the same haircut and everything. So even like at the end when it's all like, oh, you're gonna pair up with these two and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pair up with this one. They get switched again for a second and like Orsino like goes in to kiss Sebastian, which I think is just like, I liked it because it was like, well, even though like it's kind of being wrapped up in marriage and like we're sort of back to being heterosexual. It's still like a little bit going on there, which I kind of thought was a fun staging choice. Yes, I thought that was an excellent staging choice, especially because the actors who played the siblings did look pretty similar and wore the same clothing. So you could you could kind of see why there would still be some confusion going on yeah, there. Well, you always really have to stretch your suspense of disbelief, suspension of disbelief, when you're reading or watching Twelfth Night because it, it, it requires these twins to be like absolutely identical and also to not ever really think too hard about the whole like Sebastian marries Olivia, even though he doesn't know who she is thing. Is so he a gold is, digger? Is that it? Does he want to be rich? I don't know. I don't know. The way I've always thought about it, and I think this is me putting like more thought into it than Shakespeare possibly did, because probably like, you can actually see the scene where they're getting married, um, is that Sebastian has spent like the last couple of months of his life adrift at sea, grieving his sister, having like lost his position as a nobleman, also probably kind of having this like in my mind, like, sexuality crisis over being into Antonio, um, and kind of sees Olivia and, like, for a second just, like, grabs onto her and, like, her marriage proposal is a way of to kind of, like, returning to life was before he was shipwrecked. Um, and I like to think he regrets it, but, like, I don't know. I'm not the, I'm not Shakespeare. Yes, um, I mean, we don't see that he regrets it, but it seems difficult to believe that a marriage based on a case of mistaken identity would be, like, of success if that makes right. sense like i'm i'm a twin i'm an identical twin i would like to think that i have you know a different personality in life than my other the person out there who has a similar face to me so i can't imagine that olivia would also be happy in this marriage simply because her husband looks like the guy she had a crush on but isn't actually him don't so worry lulu like if anyone ever comes up to me and is like marry me lulu i will just say no you have the wrong person right like thank you thank you for reassuring me of that because I like to think maybe like a couple weeks after the end of the play they like I don't know get a divorce that probably wasn't very common back then but they're just like you know what we both got married like kind of on the wrong foot let's just also dissolve. we're both gay it's probably not what happens but I think there is a lot to think about in terms of like is it intentionally supposed to be like forced probably yes yet. and so that's what I liked about the little moment at the end where the twins get mixed up because it kind of reminds you that like everything's not set in stone and there was kind of like this gender confusion and weird love square going on and like ways of interpreting the characters and just because they're all in heterosexual marriages doesn't mean they'll stay that way yeah my final thought on that is basically that we have to keep in mind that in Shakespeare's time like comedies as a genre kind of had a different like set of rules than what we consider comedies now and basically for something to be a comedy back then it had to end with marriage which is why a lot of Shakespearean comedies end with marriages that are often like really forced, like A Midsummer Night's Dream, someone's literally drugged. Measure for measure, like super fucked up. Um, Much to do about nothing, like, she takes him back even after he left her at the altar. As you like it, there's literally like, what, a quadruple wedding and like maybe two of the people actually know each other and are like li literally like legitimately in a marriage. So we what we have to keep in mind is that like in some ways you can think about Shakespeare interrogating the idea of comedies having to end with forced marriages and being like well like yes 
technically this like traditional happily ever after thing just happened but do you guys like really think that actually constitutes a happy ending which is not like just a thought that's present in Twelfth Night or even in these adaptations but it's something you can think about as like a larger theme throughout Shakespeare's work like yes these marriages often come off as forced but that might be the point because you're kind of interrogating genre conventions but obviously Shakespeare is not around so I can't be like hey um William so like the marriages in Twelfth Night, am I supposed to actually think those are going to work out or not? But like, that's just my take on it, that I think in a way there are supposed to be kind of forced marriages in Shakespearean comedies because you're supposed to kind of think about whether that actually constitutes a happy ending. And Twelfth Night definitely does that because I am haunted by how random the ending of this play is. Top 10 questions that I would ask Shakespeare. Did you actually think the ending of this play was serious? But like the rest of it is, you know, screamingly funny and has some excellent like love squares and mistaken identities going on. So I can, I can almost forgive him for the weirdly heterosexual end. Yeah, but I mean, there are just like legitimately funny aspects of this play. Like I love seeing it staged because there are parts that the comedy has survived like several hundred years. And the physical comedy that people add in different productions is amazing like the dual scene between Andrew Agachik and Viola in this production was so funny that I was crying laughing watching it and it was just generally so good yeah so this I would say is the adaptation we're talking about that is most textually accurate because basically all it does other than like the normal adaptational tweaks of like presumably cutting a couple lines of dialogue and like adding staging is that it changes Malvolio from a woman to a man but that actually doesn't require much alteration to the text, but it does have all these like sorts of interesting implications. The next adaptation we're gonna be talking about basically throws the text of the play out the window and writes its own story, very loosely based off of Twelfth Night. And we love it for that. We do love it for it. Um, so the next adaptation we're gonna be talking about is the literary inspired web series, Twelfth Grade or whatever. You might be wondering, Lulu, what is a literary inspired web series? That is such a specific description. Basically, it was kind of, well, I say was, but it still is, but a little bit less so, is kind of this very specific subculture of retellings that I would say is like popular from like the early to mid 2010s. And it reimagines classic literature through the lens of modern social media because characters are often vloggers who will like capture the story through videos about their lives. Um, one really popular example is the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is from Pemberley Digital, which adapted Pride and Prejudice into the story of a modern day vlogger talking about her dramatic love life and family, or Nothing Much to Do, which is a series from New Zealand by the Candle Wasters, which adapted Much Do About Nothing as a story about a bunch of modern high schoolers. Twelfth Grade or Whatever in that vein is a 2016 web series from Quip Modest Productions based off of Twelfth Night, and it retells the comedy um, as a contemporary story set in an all-boys boarding school and the surrounding town. It's written and directed by Jules Piggott, who has made several other literary-inspired web series I would also recommend, and it stars Sarah E. Taylor as Viola Messing, Julian Hermano as Oren Douglas, and Kristen Vaganos as Liv Belchick. It's very different from an actual staged play because it's told in like a vlog series of really quick videos. Yes, most episodes are between like two and eight minutes. There's about 50 of them, I think. Yeah, which is typical for like the literary inspired web series. They're very quick videos and there's usually quite a lot of them that cover the story. And the framing device for this is that Viola is an aspiring filmmaker who attends West Balk's School for Boys, disguised as a cis guy, Sam, for convoluted reasons we will get into in a minute. 
Liv is a local girl who has agoraphobia and depression after losing her older brother and father. That's how they adopt the like Olivia's in mourning. Um, and she has made a YouTube channel on the suggestion of her therapist to cope with her agoraphobia. 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 Wow. It is a um, long word. It's okay. Yeah. So Viola and Liv both have YouTube channels in which they document their lives, which quickly turn into the traditional Twelfth Night love square drama identity confusion. Um, it's a pretty low budget adaptation. But it's, it's basically filmed fun. in people's bedrooms and I believe the town where the actors lived. Yeah, the real story starts off because um, Oren, Viola's roommate at school, becomes smitten from Liv, with Liv from afar and convinces Viola to talk to her under the pretense of filming a documentary. Very, very afar. I don't think they've ever actually talked at the beginning of the web series. Yeah, it mostly cuts the Malvolio plotline, I think because of casting actor availability reasons, but I'm not and sure. Also because it has some bits that don't quite work in modern day time about teenagers, like the idea of getting married and becoming a lord. That is true. Um, and it mostly focuses on the Liv Oren Viola love triangle. It's very fun. I happen to have seen it three times because I enjoy rewatching things that bring me joy and this brings me joy. And it's not very long, so you can sit down and watch it in a whole afternoon if you want to. I've yeah. also seen this several times, and I watched it first about back when it came out without having seen the play, and then I actually like watched a performance of the play, and then I watched the web series again, which was somewhat of a wild experience because the first time around I was not quite sure what was happening because some of the plot points were a little bit odd in modern day times. But then the second time I felt like I could more easily appreciate the way they adapted the play for a modern day setting and changed some things and kept some things true and explored other things in more depth. Yeah, I, that was my experience as well. Kind of, I watched this back before I had ever read or watched Twelfth Night and it's a very loose adaptation. Like there's no shipwreck, there's no sword fights. They basically throw the entire ending out the window, which I love. And they're also all, you know, like high schoolers instead of nobility living in Lyria and 16 or whatever. Um, it's, so it's a pretty loose adaptation. And the first time I watched, I didn't actually know what they're adapting, but there are some parts that are like straight from the play, which are kind of really fun nods to it. Like a soliloquy that Viola gives after meeting Olivia for the first time is like a really great modern day adaptation. Yes, it's basically uh, Viola having like a confused meltdown in a vlogging video about why Olivia likes her and how this is a problem. And I, I think it works quite well because, you know, vloggers talk about their lives and Shakespearean characters also talk about their lives. So it's a good medium to transfer it into. Yeah, I think it works really well because like soliloquies and like YouTube videos both involve someone kind of like talking to an audience about themselves. Basically though, what becomes harder to adapt in modern day times is the whole like shipwreck guy disguise aspect of it, which Twatboy or whatever does in a way that's like very different from the original play. In that um, Viola's brother Sebastian is a trans guy and was denied admittance to West Balk because they have a lot of outdated, bigoted, transphobic policies. And Viola decides to go on a secret social justice mission. Supported by her parents. Supported by her parents, yes. Gosh, imagine if they tried to do that without their parents, that'd be wild. Um, and disguises herself as a cis guy and decides to attend West Balk and is then gonna like rip off her disguise at graduation and be like, guess what? There was someone who's not a cis guy among you all and you survived. Viola, I am no man. 
yeah, I, very like I am no man, rather than there being like a shipwreck. I think it's often just like really hard to come up with reasons why like a girl would disguise herself as a guy in modern day times. Like you can't really pull a Mulan in like 21st century Virginia. Though I think it is also important to note that I liked this because um, in the end, Viola starts questioning her identity and like decides that she might be non-binary. I'm using she because she's fine with that by the end of the web series. But I like that because I think it's boring when characters just like disguise themselves as, as another gender and there's like any exploration of trans. Yes, identity. like you don't shipwreck on an island and be like, ah, the first thing I should do is pretend to be a guy. Like, I feel like that's not a cis line of thought, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, like, she was alone in a foreign country as a woman. Yes, but then, like, like, um, you know, I just feel like there's an interesting way to explore, like, Viola's gender. Like, is she doing this out of necessity or because she wants to or because she's, like, secretly always wanted to try being a guy for a while and see what it's like? Um, And I think that this play uh, has a lot of, you know, ways you could interpret Viola's relation to her gender. And I think that 12th grade or whatever actually is able to explore that because it's a 21st century web series instead of like a Shakespearean play. Yeah, so characters have like a stronger sense of like being trans or non-binary or like specific labels like demigirl or pronouns or coming out, which is like not something that people were thinking about when they wrote the original 12th night in, in that terms. Obviously there, there were senses of like LGBTQ identities back then. Those are not like a modern invention, but 12th grade or whatever talks about them in like a more modern sense that is kind of more understandable to our ideas of gender and sexuality and being trans. Um, So that's basically one aspect I really liked because I think 12th night is kind of boring if you interpret everyone as just like being straight and cis and then like throwing off their disguise and returning to normal life at the end. Whereas with 12th grade over like the aspect of the gender stuff continues even after that because Viola's like well okay now that like at the end of this web series everyone knows that I'm not actually a cis guy named Sam but like I don't really feel like a girl named Viola anymore either and you know like it's not going to just be like now I put my little Cesario identity in a box and put on my wedding dress and I'm a woman again and I think it's fun that the web series like leaned into kind of questioning and ambiguity even by the end in that aspect. Yes it also has like less heterosexual characters as well because Sebastian and Antonio are explicitly in a relationship and a bunch of other characters are bi or like realize over the course of the play they might not be entirely straight which is you know cool because that's not really a thing that they explicitly did in the original play but it does make sense that like not everyone involved in this gigantic love square of a disaster is cis and straight. Okay yes you mentioned um, Sebastian and Antonio I love the actor who plays Sebastian in this. He's he so good. Is not in that much of the web series. Like I mentioned, it's really low budget. And I think his actor was actually like in a different state when they were filming most of it. So at the end of the play, Sebastian turns up and physically reunites with Viola, but that doesn't happen in this web series. But the actor who plays Sebastian has a couple of videos because he decides to make a YouTube channel as well, mostly to like keep track of Viola's life and all the disasters happening. And his actor is so funny. He has, like, really good comedic timing. The best. It's amazing. Yeah, but he's also, like, in a romantic relationship with Antonio, and there's, like, zero doubts that they're, like, boyfriends and not just, like, my platonic pirate friend who has followed me into danger because he's just a bro. Like, I like that. Um, Yes, also, I believe Antonio is a lifeguard in this adaptation, which is an excellent way to do that. 
Yeah, it has all these really funny nods to the original play. Like the way that the Sebastian and Antonio characters in the web series met was that Sebastian was drowning and Antonio was the lifeguard who saved him. Yes, and also uh, the school they go to is called West Balk, which is a reference to the fact that Illyria is in the West Balkans in Europe, which I did not realize until the second time I watched this and I felt really smart. Yeah, historically Illyria was like a real place, kind of near Albania. Yeah, I, I believe so. I'm not yeah. exactly an expert on geography. So yeah, it's, it's just a really fun web series. It's not very high budget. It's not like going to see something at the Globe Theater levels of production, but it's really fun and the actors are very charming and they make some fun adaptational choices in terms of like not having to force characters back these like heterosexual relationships and like- Yes, this web series believes in Olivia Viola supremacy and I love them for that. Yeah, also, the actor's just really charming. Like, I love the actor who plays Orsino. He's just, like, really fun. Yeah, so the characters have really good chemistry together. Like, you really believe that they've been friends for a while or that they're, like, developing romantic feelings for each other, and it's just excellent to watch. Yeah. Like, like before the plot properly kicks off, there's a bunch of videos that are just people hanging around on their YouTube channels, and I never felt bored or, like, was waiting for the plot to advance just because I enjoyed watching them talk together so much. Yeah, definitely. Um, Orsino slash Oren and Viola slash Sam have like a really fun dynamic. They're roommates, but also Viola like really obviously has this unrequited thing for so him. So obviously. But they have like, they just have really great banter and the actors like totally capture this like, we're friends, but I also have this thing for you that I'm kind of in denial about relationship. It's just great. Like I, they're all just excellent. Yeah, this... Uh... Web series also introduces some ships that I had not even remotely considered in the original play. Uh, I had like I don't think Andrew Agachik and Orsino have like even a single scene in the play, but in the web series they're quite good friends, and I really enjoyed the video so they hung out. Yeah, because what this does was instead of having two noble households, which is Olivia's household, which has like Olivia, Malvolio, Mariah, Andrew, Toby, Fabian, Valentine, no, not Valentine. And then the, there's Orsino's household, which is like Orsino, Viola slash Cesario Valentine. It kind of squishes them together. So there's the guys at the boarding school. So like Andrew, Orsino, well, Oren, um, Sam, Vic, Kurt, various other people all live there. And then there's like Olivia's household. So it kind of switches stuff around. So characters who don't necessarily interact because they're from different households do interact because they attend the same boarding school. So there's sort of this like core friend group of like the guy friends, which is Oren and Sam slash Viola, um, Vic and Kurt, who are, I think, supposed to be Valentine Curia and Curio. Yeah, they're Curio and Valentine. And then um, Andrew, who has like nothing in common with play Andrew, but I love him. Oh, yeah. I have no I have no feelings towards uh, Andrew Agatrick in the play, but I love Drew because his favorite adventure is Janet Van Dyne, which is so valid of him. Okay, He's yeah, just a nice boy. I'll back up and explain it. So Sir Andrew in the play is um, someone who's come to court Olivia, and I literally always confuse him with Sir Toby, which is dumb because they have nothing in common. They just have Sir in front of their name, Sir Toby. It's kind of like those dudes who hang around, though. Yeah, Sir Toby is Olivia's uncle. His main characteristic is just being kind of a drunk. Sir Andrew's main characteristic is just kind of being dumb. Um, and he's come to, like, really ineffectively court Olivia and doesn't really manage to do that. And they sort of hang out and are bros and are, like, 
comedic side relief, but um, side comic relief. But in this, Andrew is like basically had his entire personality swapped out, which I don't mind because he's lovely and thoughtful. Um, and he's like interested in math. People think he's kind and, of boring, but he's also sort of a sweetheart. And like over the course of the web series, like you sort of unpack these layers of his character, which are not at all present in the play. And it's like totally original to this adaptation, mm -hmm. which I love. And like, you legitimately are like, oh my God, wow. Orin and Andrew have like this lovely relationship, which is hilarious when you think about it in terms of Orsino and Sir Andrew who don't even interact during the play and have nothing in common. Yes, and Sir Toby in this version is, uh, gender bent and a lovely character that like is somewhat misguided but is just kind of trying to do the right thing i feel like a running theme in this play is that a lot of people are just like nicer and get along in this adaptation than they are in the play that is true but it's probably also because they're a bunch of teenagers who are a little bit dumb but ultimately are just like trying to get along yeah but it's also like characters are in a contemporary modern day setting so i think they have to be a little bit more realistic like no one's running off the chapel to get married after knowing each other for five minutes because like that just wouldn't be realistic yeah but no. that, is, that is true um what also i love and now we're just going to skip to talking about the ending because i really want to talk about the ending mm -hmm. is that basically twelfth or whatever throws out the original ending and is like we're just going to write a different one which i love because over the course of the, the web series it becomes pretty clear that viola has a thing for Oren. It is, it is so clear, like, you watch the early videos where they're interacting and the actor who plays uh, Viola is just, like, trying really hard to pretend that they're not interested in Oren, but, you know. Yeah, anyway, so it, it. It, it's obviously clear that there's, like, this possibly unrequited, thinking it's unrequited one, kind of one-sided friend crush, um, but then, like, Oren starts to have, like, kind of his own realization that he's not straight but the two of them don't end up together unlike in the original play because the this adaptation like really leans into the relationship between olivia and viola and that Liv and viola have been like hanging out and they have like videos together and Liv is sort of getting out of her shell um and working on her mental health and like enjoying making new connections with people and has this crush on viola and in the end the play like basically just sets up a romance where Liv and Viola get together, which I like because I always think that Viola and Olivia have like really interesting relationship and I enjoy like reading the scenes and seeing how people interpret it. But obviously like that's always ripped away by the ending when they just go marry two separate guys. But in this one, the, the ending is like, you know what? Like actually it would be nice if Viola and Olivia ended up together, which is like super valid. But also um, there's kind of a new relationship which is just, like not at all hinted about in the play that sort of is set up, which is Andrew and Drew, Andrew and Oren, which I just liked a lot, mostly because the actors are both like nice and they have good chemistry. But it's just such an interesting adaptational choice because you'd never sit down and read Twelfth Night and be like, oh, the like romantic tension between Sir Andrew and Arsino is evident because they never in interact. Fairness, there, in fairness, there are a limited number of characters in this adaptation. So if he was going to end up yeah, with someone. I think it's a, it's a great example like that you don't have to be true to a play's plot or text to create a good adaptation that still has like the themes of the play because this has yeah. like a complicated love triangle it has like a sibling relationship it has like gender and sexual fluidity but it doesn't actually follow the events of the play that strongly especially near the end but it still feels like true to the heart of twelfth night which i really yes. appreciate the first time I was watching this, I knew the plot of Twelfth Night vaguely, so I knew who like the endgame relationships were. And as I was watching, I was really hoping that uh, 
Viola and Liv were going to end up together just because I really liked the chemistry between the characters and I thought their interactions were really well written but I wasn't sure if they're going to go for it because you know a lot of times literary web series do try to stick by the book and then at the end they just had uh, Oren and Viola stay friends and Viola and Liv end up together and I really liked that choice because I feel like it kind of acknowledged that like you know the ending of the play feels very forced here's what we think would happen if it was less forced yeah I think it works really well because it's set in a different time and characters have different understandings of how relationships and gender and sexuality function like they're all teenagers and they're not immediately going to start getting married and they're not like aristocrats and they're not like wooing each other and they also have like a more modern sense of like identity I guess and also yes. it's like you know uh, to be clear, uh, Viola does kiss Oren at one point, but they don't end up together because they kind of like sit and think on it and they're like, eh, maybe not. And then they stay friends instead. Yeah. Also, there's this little subplot, which is that the play is called Twelfth Night. So they adapted the title to be Twelfth Grade, which means they're all seniors in high school who are getting ready to graduate. And Oren and Viola are like, well, we're about to graduate and go off to different colleges. We don't want to get into a relationship, which is like such a realistic modern day teen thing. Um, so some of the characters are kind of dealing with like ending and moving on to new things, which is like not really a theme that's like so much in the play, but I think works well because that is something you encounter in high school. We were like, no one's going to start dating each other in the second half of senior year because they're all going to go off to different colleges, but it feels like very realistic. Mm -hmm. um, so that is sort of like a bit of a road bump in the like live and viola relationship. So they take it like very healthily. I liked it. Um, so it's not like they kind of consider like do they want to still be in a relationship or just be friends for the moment and being a friend isn't anything lesser it's just like yes. a different type of relationship and the video the video when they do get together takes place like uh several months after the end of the other videos i think so like they've had time to like think and recover from the fact that uh viola kind of lied to some of her friends even if she had a good social justice cause and there was like a fist fight at one point and people argued and i liked that instead of everyone diving into relationships immediately the web series kind of let them sort out the various issues that came their way and then have a relationship when they felt ready for it yeah and this applies to the drew and Oren relationship that is set up during the adaptation as well because the way that it slowly unfolds is that after Sam kisses Oren. Oren starts to have his own crisis and is like, oh my god, like this person who I thought was my male best friend just kissed me and like perhaps I am not the 100% heterosexual dude that I thought I was. And he decides to ask Drew for some advice because Drew seems like a smart guy and like Drew reveals to him that he is gay but hasn't talked about it much because they attend this like fairly conservative like bro culture boarding school. And then, um, then it's like becomes obvious over the course of that video that Drew also totally has a thing for Oren and Oren is like maybe interested in him as well and like will be doing some relationship experimenting at some point. Yes, I, I kind of love the line where Drew is like any guy who's into guys at West Bulk would have a crush on you and then Oren is like math meme wait but you're into guys you go to West Bulk does that mean you have a crush on me? It was just very funny. Yeah the script for this is just really fun like it's great. But um, they don't end up in a relationship at the end of the web series, but there is a sequel that explores it a little bit more. Yeah, it's which is several years later. So like, you know, they've had time to work things out. Yeah, but it, it kind of, it's satisfying for me to watch because 
like I mentioned, anytime I read or watch Twelfth Night, I'm just like having a good time, and then I get to the ending, I'm just like screeched to a halt. Oh no, all the fun is gone. They're all this just is like, displeasingly heterosexual. No, it totally is. But the ending of Twelfth Grade or whatever is like, well, what if we did lean into that aspect, and what if the characters who had good chemistry got together instead of randomly marrying other people? Also, like you know, they were inhibited by the fact that Sebastian lived in another state, so they couldn't do the ending if they wanted to. That is true. Oh my god. But it would have been great if Sebastian turned up in this because his actor is just so fun. I love Yeah. I, I did love uh, the Sebastian actor a lot. I also liked that their parents are called Helena and Hermia, which is another little nod to another Shakespeare play. Yeah. Though I, The sad thing about watching web series like this is that there will be like really charming actors who have great chemistry with each other and then they like won't really be in anything else because they're like... Yes, radar. I know we've talked about the Sebastian actor a lot, but I just generally felt like the whole main cast of this was like pretty strong and they had like good chemistry with each other. And I thought that the story, it didn't feel forced. It felt like, you know, acting. Yeah, I think it's really important that like your actors, especially in a play like Twelfth Night, which relies so much on romance and relationships, have really good chemistry. And I think it, they did in this, like Sarah E. Taylor, who plays Viola, is just like a really great lead and has like great dynamics with Liv and with Oren that are like unique but both kind of intriguing and like even the side characters have relationships that you feel about like Tammy who is like this version of Toby and Liv or um like two minor side characters like Kurt and Vic who are adaptations of like servant characters that have no personality in the original play are kind of given this like slightly sad subplot so I feel like it's a great web series and personally I would love it if these actors went on to be in other things so like just gonna use my brainwaves to be like, please cast them in things. They're all charming and good actors. Or web series, or more anything, really. Also, this is the good modern adaptation of Twelfth Night because I 100% think that Duke Orsino would listen to Taylor Swift after being rejected by Olivia, and so oh, this does he happen. Absolutely would, yeah. All right, so our final Twelfth Night adaptation that we're going to be talking about is the Twelfth Night musical because that's a thing and it's really cool. Uh, it was made by Shani Taub and Kwame Kwe Arma, uh, who've also adapted As You Like It, apparently. And it's part of the public theater Shakespeare in the Park. And it's pretty much what it sounds like on the tin. It's a musical version of Twelfth Night. It sticks much more closely to the original play uh, than Twelfth Grade or whatever it does. Like, example, Viola and Arsino do end up together at the end of this play. Um, but, you know, they have slightly more modern dialogue, like people call Orsino slash Olivia or Olivia and Viola's reaction to being given uh, Olivia's ring is oh shit instead of something more poetic and Shakespearean. It does sometimes quote the original play, but the lyrics to the songs are pretty much all original. It's available to listen to on Spotify, which is where I first came across it, and it's sung pretty much the whole way through so you can understand the story without actually having to watch although I would recommend having some amount of familiarity with the actual plot of Twelfth Night before you listen. And I just think that a musical of Twelfth Night is just a generally really good concept because whoever came up with the idea of Shakespearean monologues as, as songs really deserves an award. Everyone in this play is super dramatic and you know that they would 100% be having big dramatic uh, songs every single time something weird happened to them. And the music is also really fun. It's kind of jazzy and really gets stuck in your head. There's like trumpets and there's like soulful ballads and like a Disney villain song and a fun drinking song. And it's just generally really fun to listen to. It's so catchy. And I really do love that this is a musical of Twelfth Night specifically because there is music in the original Twelfth Night. 
because Feste, who's kind of like the fool who goes around judging people, um, often plays music. And the production that I mentioned that we didn't talk about in depth, the 2011 Stratford one, like has really great musical numbers for each of those songs, which makes you really realize there is a lot of music in Twelfth Night, even without it being a musical. So it makes perfect sense to take this play that already has like a fair amount of music and turn it into a full-on musical. Like, it just works really well. People talk about music in Twelfth Night a lot. Like Orsino says, if music be the food of love, play on at the very start of the play, which he's kind of talking about like romance and being dramatic. But there is sort of this like consistent theme of music throughout that I think works really well when you translate into an actual musical because characters being musical and talking about music is already in the text of your Yes. Play. And I think Shakespeare specifically works well as being translated into a musical because the characters get like these long monologues about themselves that turn into a song super easily. Like one of my favorite songs in this musical is Viola's soliloquy about like the attention that Olivia is giving her and the fact that she's disguised and is pretending to be someone else. And it's a really good song because I feel like it, it's just, it's fun to listen to, but it also digs into her feelings about being Cesario really well and about whether or not like, this disguise as concealing her or revealing something, like if uh, she has more power and control as a man, why she's doing this in the first place, and like if she's doing it out of necessity or because she likes it. And it just works so well as a musical number. And I really liked that. Basically, like all the songs in this are good. If you ask me to pick a top one, I'm not sure I really could. I love Viola's soliloquy in this because it's just like super, super catchy. It was the first song that I ever heard from this and absolutely got me hooked on the rest of the musical. And I also feel like um, it leans into this interesting ambiguity that you can see in Viola's identity, which is like, do I feel more comfortable as a man because I'm free of the sexism that I face as a woman? Or do I feel comfortable as a man because like maybe Viola is not an entirely cis character? And this play doesn't, this, sorry, this musical doesn't really have like a trans viola interpretation because she does kind of be like at the end takes off her disguise i'm viola i'm a woman and like marries orsino but i think it's interesting because if you just listen to that song alone it leans into like the sort of ambiguity of identity that i feel like is at the heart of 12th night also is just like a bop like all the songs in this are just bops it's yes. great i also love uh malvolio's like villain song count malvolio about how he wants to marry olivia because he's like this really Puritan killjoy character and his song is just so fun to listen to. It's kind of astounding that a character like that annoying has something so catchy. I also love the song that's uh, about like Toby and Mariah and Feste because they get this like fun drinking song making fun of each other and calling each other like the worst. And it just really sets up like the dynamics of their group as being kind of like troublemakers who are like raucous but also looking for a good time. And then there's Viola's song, uh, Is This Not Love, about her feelings for Osino, which is like very soulful and kind of a little sad and sweet. And it's just, there's a lot of different types of songs in this musical, but they all work really well within the story of Twelfth Night. Yeah, I also love that Antonio has his own rendition of Is This Not Love, which is obviously aimed at Sebastian and has a really great way of like establishing Antonio's feelings for Sebastian as like explicitly romantic because we all know that Viola has feelings for Orsino, so then you directly parallel that with Antonio and Sebastian and it becomes like totally clear what's going on. I have never seen this actually staged. I've just listened to the soundtrack. I've heard that they make Antonio's ending a little happier than it is in the original play, but it's hard to tell just from listening. But I think that's fun because I think Antonio is 
a character who deserves better because one, he's gay, and two, he's a pirate, and three, I think I just like him. So he should Antonio have should go beyond Black Sails, which is full of gay pirates. I'm sure he'd be welcome there. Well, he could, but Black Sails is over. <laughs> True. Uh, yeah, anyway, I just think I haven't seen the production of this. Like Lulu said, there aren't any recordings of it online, and it was Shakespeare in the Park. But you can follow the plot of it pretty well just by listening to the songs. And although it does um, have the same ending as Twelfth Night pretty much, I think that it does like a good job of leaning a bit into like the gender stuff. And the music is just really fun, and I love listening to it. Yeah, it's just like an absolute bop. Like the songs are so catchy. Like I, 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 I found myself listening to um, Malvolio's villain song while doing homework on repeat sometimes just because it's so fun. Yeah, I think, I don't think that's my favorite one, but I really like Yola's Soliloquy. And then I also really like um, What Kind of Man Are You Gonna Be, which is a bop. And oh yeah, that one's so fun. I just... They're all fun in different ways. Like a lot of the songs have different tones from each other, but I think they work really well because you can kind of see like where in the play you would be able to fit a song like that. Also, Tell Her, which is the song where Orsino is instructing Viola slash Cesaro to go woo Olivia is really great because Orsino will be like, I need you to go woo Olivia. And Viola would just like, oh, you need me? I want you to go woo Olivia. Oh, you want me? And it's like really obvious that she like has a thing for Orsino, mm-hmm. but at this moment, she, like he's got a thing for Olivia. And it just is a great example. Yeah, it, of, like the love square at the heart of Twelfth Night translated into mm-hmm. a song. It's also it's also so good. And then when she does get her like big soulful ballad about Orsino, it's very valid. And sometimes I'm not like incredibly sold on the character's romance because you know Olivia and Viola are right there but is this not love is a very good song and I can it definitely like shows like Viola's uh kind of feelings that she wants to tell Orsino that she loves him but she's also lying to him and he's interested in someone else Mm, yeah I think it just it's great it's very accurate to Twelfth Night I would say in terms of character's theme as a plot which is like good in some ways because it feels like it's adapting the heart of it but I also feel like it just adds like a fun own spin to the story which is just great yeah I also love that the characters talk a little bit more modern in the songs because I think it would be really hard to translate a Shakespeare soliloquy into a straight-up song but this way it's like a little bit easier and they can make things rhyme where they can make people say stuff in modern slang and I think it works better than if they'd tried to set the play to music yeah, so basically, a PSA, Public Works, Twelfth Night, is a great musical. It's a bop. It's on Spotify, also probably like YouTube and other places. You should all listen to it. It's great. Public Works, if you ever decide to like record a video of this, I will happily watch it. I feel like my feelings about Twelfth Night overall are like a little complicated because it's a fun play and I love all these adaptations and there are even more adaptations that I enjoy that we haven't talked about in this but I also like I don't like the ending and I don't like that it relies on like twins being interchangeable people which is my least favorite trope because there's sort of this implication that like Olivia and Sebastian's marriage will maybe like be fine because they look like he looks like Cesaria which is maybe just me being picky about that but it's also like just such a fun play and I feel like Mm -hmm. there's so much you can dig into especially with adaptations I love it when people lean into 
um, like trans themes or LGBTQ otherwise themes in the play. I love it when people like translate it into other settings. I think it's just like a play that is like fun, but also can have these sort of darker aspects like how people treat Malvolio or the fact that Viola and Sebastian think that the other one is dead for a big chunk of the play. Mm -hmm. Make for like a play that's really easily adaptable because there are all these like themes that can be fun, but also can be more serious. And there's just so many ways you can interpret it. Like if you want to talk about interpreting Viola as trans, I've like heard so many different ways you can see that like Cesario is a trans man. Oh, Viola slash Cesario is like gender fluid. Uh, Viola is a trans woman who's being forced to like dressed as a guy for safety reasons. And like, yeah, I've also heard Sebastian is a trans man, which is what 12th grade or whatever went for. Yeah, so there's just like so many ways you can interpret it, which is what I really enjoy. And like, honestly, people could just continue making 12th night adaptations that are like fun and have LGBTQ characters for like a long time. And I would probably absorb all of them, but like they don't actually even have to be fun. I'm contradicting myself. One of my favorite 12th night adaptations is a very sad young adult contemporary called The Last True Poets of the Sea, which is a great book, but not cheerful. Truly excellent. I don't think we have time to discuss it on here right now, but it is good. Yeah, so I just, I think Twelfth Night is a very fun play and it's just ripe for adaptation. And I feel like these three all have their interesting takes on it that are all unique, but all come from the original play, but just spin it off in such different directions that it's fun to be like, oh, I see like where they started off with it yeah. and how they're doing their completely own thing. Because, you know, one um, sticks to the actual text of the play, but manages to fit in subtext around it. And one of them does not stick to the actual text of the play at all. And one of them is true to the plot of the play, but changes the way that it's delivered to you as through a musical instead of dialogue. And I did think it's awesome that there are so many different ways you can adapt such a classic and interesting play because there are also parts of it that feel unsatisfying and it's nice to know that other people have noticed those parts and been like yeah but maybe i could do this instead so psa 12th night is gay and if somebody comes up to you and asks to get married and they're actually looking for your twin please don't do it it will end badly yeah it will not it will not end well and i think that might be a good note to end things on unless you have anything else to say I think that is a good note to end it on. My advice would also be um, be nicer to the pirate guy who saved your life and took you under his wing. I think it's very mean to just let Antonio get thrown off in jail and I hope someone goes and gets him for the after party. <laughs> Justice for Antonio, make Twelfth Night gay. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, or shoot us an email at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet at gmail.com.